Good morning and a very warm welcome to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill. And today, folks, we are going to be joined by Pastor Phil, who will be sharing again on the account of Jairus' daughter and how that impacts him. And also joining us today, we have Pastor Dominic of Athlone Cherith Baptist Church joining us with his next installment, his third installment on the Disciples' Prayer or as you know it, or I know it, as the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. And so he will be joining us to go and dig into that a little bit more, and we look forward to that. Today, our lectionary psalm is Psalm 31, and so to get things rolling, we are going to listen to Charlie's reading the psalm for us. Thank you, Charlie's. We're reading from Psalms 31. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. As for me, I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love. For you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not given me into the hands of the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish, and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction, and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors, and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery, for I hear many whispering, terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, Lord, for I have cried out to you. But let the wicked be put to shame and be silent in the realm of the dead. Let their lying lips be silenced, for with pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. How abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all on those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence you hide them from all human intrigues, You keep them safe in your dwelling from accusing tongues. Praise be to the Lord, for he showed me the wonders of his love. When I was in a city under siege, in my alarm I said, I am cut off from your sight. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord, all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those who are true to him. But the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. When we consider Psalm 31, 
It's a psalm that goes and swings between two schools of thought. One minute, the psalmist is praising God for the things that he knows that God has done. And then on the other side, he is suddenly confronted with the circumstances he finds himself in. And he's asking God to go and reach out and deliver him effectively from his situation. So it goes moving from the blessings to the dilemma, from the blessings to the dilemma throughout the psalm. Now here's the thing, even though it's used in a messianic sense in regard to God going and cutting Christ off, etc., when he was on the cross, and it's delved into as part of Good Friday, when we go and reflect upon Christ going and winning our salvation. other side of it is that it is a psalm of David, and as I said, it teeters between knowing God's blessing to going and looking at one's circumstances, to and fro. And so often, be real, so often, you and I do the same thing. On the one hand, we know God's blessings. We've seen God answer prayer. We've seen him deliver us. We've seen him do wonderful things. And then when we're in there, a certain circumstance that we suddenly find ourselves in, we're going, Lord, do not leave me. Do not fors- forsake me. Come, be here for me. Deliver me. Can't you hear my cry? As it goes and says in verse 2, Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. How often we can be like that. We're looking at the fact that God has gone and been there for us in the past. And yet we question and query whether he will be there for us in the present. Do you know the last line of the psalm just simply goes and says, Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Why is that? Because here is the essential thing that we all need to get a grasp of. The reason that we have a past is we can look back and see how God has helped us, saved us, led us, guided us in the present, giving us hope for the future. As we stand in the present, we look back to our past and see how God has been there for us, which gives us hope for our future. But who is our hope in? Our hope is in the Lord. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Midlands 183. Welcome back to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill. Next up, we have Pastor Phil going to share with us about hope for the hopeless. Again, looking at the story of Jairus' daughter. A week or two ago, we had Pat and Terry on sharing their story and the resurrection of Terry and their journey through that whole procedure and how it was that God had answered their prayers. In this case, Phil, well, things worked out differently for him. His daughter had a rare condition and his daughter passed away. And so he looks at this story and he goes and talks to us from a, from a different angle. And I felt it was important to allow Phil to go and share his take on the story and how it has ministered to him. But before he does, we're going to listen to the hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. Hello again, folks. Thanks for joining me today once again on Treasuring Jesus. In the gatherings on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, what Jesus had done ridding a man of the legion of demons had caused quite a stir. So much so, he'd actually been asked to leave. On the other side of the lake, the response was 
quite different. We read today from Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, and from verse 40. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter of about twelve years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for twelve years, who also had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. Immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitude's throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that he, she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. There are some moments in life that you'll never ever forget. Many years ago, it was after midnight when the telephone rang. It was the hospital where our little 10-year-old girl, Chell, had been lying. She'd improved enough in her condition to let her mum and dad be at home and have a sleep that night. But the voice at the end of the telephone said, Mr. Campbell, I'm sorry. Your little girl has just died. I do not find it difficult to identify with Jairus. Having begged Jesus to come and heal his little girl, he received the message from home that he'd been dreading. Your daughter is dead. Must have had the same feeling deep in the pit of his stomach that I did those many years ago after that phone call from Belfast's Children's Hospital. But Jesus was quick to reassure, quick to reassure him, don't be afraid, believe and she'll be made well. And a short time later, Jairus and his wife were rejoicing to see their daughter breathing, standing up and hungry. I wonder if you have a loved one for whom you're concerned. Maybe they're spiritually or physically healthy, but spiritually speaking, they have little interest in God or the Bible or church, and their whole case seems absolutely hopeless. 
And I'm guessing you may well agonize in prayer for them, morning, noon, and night. Listen, please don't give up. Please don't despair. Jesus can come into your home and bring spiritual life to that loved one. And you will rejoice at what's done in their lives. Because you see, our Savior doesn't recognize the word hopeless. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you delight in dealing with hopeless cases. Please hear our prayer for those who need our Savior's transforming power and may news of their salvation be heard far and wide. We bring our prayer in the worthy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks once again, folks, for, for joining me today. And until next time, keep treasuring Jesus. God bless. Midlands 103. Welcome back to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill, where we have had a brief look at Psalm 31, where we've been listening to Pastor Phil sharing his story as he reflects on the raising of Jairus' daughter, and now we are going to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture. And the reason I say it's a familiar passage of Scripture is it's one that very often is read at funerals. And this is where Jesus goes and meets with his disciples before the actual crucifixion takes place. And he's teaching them what is going to take place. And so we read the first 14 verses. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me and that you also may be where I am. You know the ways to the place where I am going. Now Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name. And I will do it. Folks, this passage of scripture is a passage of scripture that really challenges me. 
Yes, in the funeral context, it speaks about the fact that Jesus is going to prepare a place and he's going to bring those who are his believers, those who believe in him, his disciples, to that place which he has prepared. And that is the hope that we have as Christians, is that we are going to be reunited with Christ because of his resurrection and because he is going to return. But that's not the part that challenges me about this passage of Scripture. What challenges me about this passage of Scripture is what Jesus goes and says in regard to his people, what we would call the church. And that is his people, irrespective of denomination, those who are his disciples, those who are his followers. He says to them that they are to believe in him if for no other reason than that the miracles actually go and verify who he is. But then he goes on to say that the one who believes in him will do even greater things than he has done. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me. So it isn't exclusively to the twelve apostles. It is to whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now here is the challenge for me. You see, when I read the Gospels and read what Jesus was doing, I am challenged by the fact that I do not see that happening today. There's some will go and say, well, we live in a different dispensation that era is gone. No, I don't see that in Scripture. Because if you look at the prophecy that Joel gives, Peter goes and says that it was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, which we will be looking at in the not-too-distant future. But we also see that that is still needing to be fulfilled in the book of Revelation. That is only a partial fulfillment in the book of Acts. And that partial fulfillment, we still live in that era, in the era of the Spirit, in the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. And so when we look at this passage of Scripture, it tells us very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And then he goes and he says this in regard to prayer. And this, I believe, is a challenge to all of us. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, be honest. That is where we have difficulty. And you see, here is the challenge. Here is the issue, the conundrum that I have in regard to this. Either what Jesus Christ was saying here is true and he has told us that he is the way, the truth and the life. Or we, the church, have lost our direction. And we don't understand what it is and how it is that God wishes to work and minister through you and me. This is an area that I'm exploring but I have met many people who have gone and asked God for things and God didn't come through for them in inverted commas. And then what they start to do is they start to reconcile it 
in different ways. And I'm not saying that I'm not guilty of doing that myself. But what I am saying is this is the very challenge that I'm wrestling with. And I would encourage you to wrestle with it. Because at the end of the day, what are the reasons that you truly believe that God went and did what he said he would do for you? How do you know that? What is your evidence? How can you prove it? Jesus says to his disciples, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is from the Father living in me, who is doing his work. And then he goes and he says, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works or the miracles themselves. Why do you believe? Let me leave that question with you. Midlands 183. Well, good morning to you, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. This is Pastor Dom back with you again through Nigel's kind invitation to join you today on Heartlands, Midlands 103. These are the Disciples' Prayer Devotionals, and this is number three, our sanctification. Prayer is something we don't find easy, and we often find ourselves wandering in our focus. The hymn writer said this, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Here on earth there are so many distractions, which is why Jesus set before his disciples the model prayer, the pattern for prayer. He first stunned his hearers by telling them to call God our Father. And previously we had spoken about our connection, all due to that simple phrase, Our Father. But we discovered that that little phrase is anything but simple. Last time we talked about the second phrase, In Heaven, of the Disciples' Prayer, examining the distinction under the headings of Majesty, Authority and Security of that amazing place. So let's read the disciples' prayer again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hallowed be your name, is the phrase we're going to examine. Hallowed. This is not a word that we readily use today, and so we often tend to assume that perhaps Jesus is making a statement. Hallowed be, hallowed is your name. But that would be a wrong conclusion to come to. The phrase, hallowed be your name, is in fact the first of six petitions contained within our disciples' prayer. It's also important for us to see and to understand the name that Jesus has just revealed to his disciples, our Father. Jesus has this masterful way of bringing us into an intimate closeness to our Father and yet keeps us aware of our Father's distinction, his sovereignty, his power, his glory with the phrase, in heaven. But there is another aspect that Jesus wants to reveal to us about our Father, and that's 
his holiness. And it is his inherent holiness that he wants to be the focus of this first petition. In Leviticus 11, verse 44, it says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. And the word hallowed means to sanctify, to make holy. It means that something or someone is set apart and dedicated for a specific use. But why would we ever have to call upon our Father to make his name holy. And sad to say, the reason is us. Please let me explain. In both the Old Testament and New Testament thinking, a person's name was the summation of who that person was, their character, their responsibilities. Now think about the name our Father that Jesus has just set before his disciples then and us today. Let's consider our Father under two headings. One, consider the Father's personality. How can we know and understand the personality of God? Through the many names that he has revealed to us in the Bible. And here are just three. In the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, he is Elohim the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. Just imagine his sovereignty and power. In Genesis 14, verse 18, he is El Elyon. When Abraham met Melchizedek, the mysterious king of Salem, also to become Jerusalem, Melchizedek is declared to be the priest of the Most High God, El Elyon. There can be no more majestic, preeminent, or exalted position than this. The Most High God is above all and over all. In Genesis 17, verse 1, he is El Shaddai. The one who meets Abraham to lovingly sustain and satisfy and supply Abraham with whatever he needs, including a son from himself and Sarah, to richly bless them and their futures. So from just these three names alone, we begin to realize this incredible picture of God's personality and our Father's power position, and provision for us since the beginning of creation. So having considered the Father's personality, let's turn now and consider the Father's responsibility. Knowing that we couldn't walk this Christian life by ourselves, Jesus made sure that the first petition in the disciples' prayer would be, Hallowed be your name. Jesus is depending upon our Father to sanctify and make holy all that he is and all that is his. This means not just his name, but his body, his family, and therefore us. But then hasn't it always been a Father's responsibility to manage, teach, discipline, and provide for his family? Having said these biblical principles to us as fathers, will he not also live them out before us himself and therefore make us holy? Levit Leviticus 22 says, 
Do not profane my holy name. I must be acknowledged as holy before the Israelites. I am the Lord who makes you holy. In Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. In Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11, but especially verse 10, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And Jude, verses 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. What verses that make it clear that it is our Father's responsibility to transform his people from the inside out. As in the previous devotions, I have a quote and a question. The ancient world found it incomprehensible that a father could possibly love his child and not punish him. In fact, a real son would draw more discipline than, say, an illegitimate child, for the precise reason that greater honour and responsibility were to be his, so says R. Kent Hughes. Do you really think that because you're finding it tough to live as a Christian now, that it must be because her father has forgotten you or turned his back on you? Or might it just be because he is preparing you for even greater tasks and matters in the times to come. May you have a truly blessed day today, listeners. Remembering Jesus' words as he prayed, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. John 17, verse 24. Amen. Amen. Midlands 183.